Hey everyone, welcome to As a Film Student, your new favorite film podcast about why I think straight people need to revoke some of their rights. And all of that is non negotiable. I'm your host, Mon. And I'm your co host, Nick. Today, we're going to discuss perhaps the most emotionally draining, soulless piece of shit movie that I've ever seen in my entire self destructive existence. And I've seen Cats four times this year, including last night. <sighs> I don't I know how you do that. I passed out. I have no idea how you do that, Nick. But before that, I just want to say thanks for all the likes and comments that you guys have just sent to us. It's really encouraging and we really appreciate it. And we had recognition from one of the cast members from Seven Psychopaths, the film that we discussed last episode. <gasps> Yeah, we've we've actually been recognized we by a celebrity, and it's the best kind of celebrity. Like my life has peaked. I'm gonna end it <laughs> soon now. Yeah, Bunny, the dog, the Kilu Shitsu from last film we discussed. Um, yeah, the film that we discussed last week. Like we, she commented on one of our Insta posts at Film Shin Pod. That's a subtle plug. She knows that we exist. Like I can die happy now. Now all I need is Rob Pattinson's validation and I can literally just I can just die. I'll be I'll die the most happiest person in the world if Rob Pattinson just notices my just notices me. If you haven't seen The Kissing Booth, two things. One, fuck you. Two, keep it that way. The Kissing Booth is a story of a codependent relationship that destroys everything around it. Adapted from a Wattpad novel that got a book deal, this film is in essence every 1980s to early 2000s romantic comedy set in a high school, put through a blender, and served up without any irony, self-reflection, or a genuine identity of its own, resulting in another brick of Netflix's wall of originals that gained enormous attraction despite being utter dog shit. No offense, Bonnie. The film revolves around Elle and Lee, two kids whose mums were best friends, so they were, like, contractually obligated to become best friends. Lee has a supposedly hot older brother, Noah. I didn't see it. Like, he's, he's not that hot. Sorry, Jacob. So, like, who Elle has a crush on. But one of the rules of Elle and Lee's friendship is that she can't date Noah. Now, Mon, you recommended this film. Please tell me why. The reasons? <laughs> there are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you have Wattpad? Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> right. Wattpad was my shit. Like, that was my entire teenage childhood. And, like, oh, my God, not going to lie. I wrote novels upon novels of stories, Nick. Like, holy crap. I was literally famous. I had over 200,000 views on one of my fanfics. And I would spend so much time on it reading endless amounts of shitty literature. Oh, my goodness. Anyways, let me explain what Wattpad is. It's basically an app that allows you to publish your original stories or even fan fictions of films, TV, comics, and even celebrities. Yeah, I, I, I knew what Wattpad is, but that's, that's for you, dear listener, if you don't, if you're blessed and you don't know what Wattpad is. But I, 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 I actually didn't know that The Kissing Booth started on Wattpad, which honestly, perhaps one of the worst places to start a major motion picture. Sweetie, Fifty Shades literally start on fanfiction internet. Don't at me, but like in the fanfic world, there's like different tiers of fanfiction. The first is Wattpad. It's like for kiddos and the stories are like really shit. 
The second is fanfiction.net. Now, this is slightly better, but it still has some like yikes content. The top tier and the best, in my humble opinion, is Archive of Our Own. And that's where all the shit, that's where the good shit is. Okay? Like, Archive of My Own. Of our own gave me like five new fetishes that I never knew I had back <laughs> exactly. in the day. Exactly, <laughs> like it's got the god tier, two hundred thousand words, slow burns, bakery AU's, and alternative universe shit that I gobble up every night, even at the ripe age of twenty. So that those are the tiers of fanfiction, man. Yeah, I only ever evolved to writing on fanfiction.net, but I loved reading archive because the tagging system oh it was so good i i know you were on all three i yeah? was on all three baby oh my god oh, thank god we scrapped that idea of us reading little bits of what we were writing at this age because i know what i was writing when i was 15 16 and it was very much you know that counterculture sort of thing like as discussed in episode one i hated twilight i really disliked the female ya sort of trend semi writing at the time attempted to subvert those expectations yeah like much like the og writer of the kissing booth she hated the paranormal aspects of twilight and wanted to the ground well she wanted to ground the narrative in a high school format hence the messiness of what's to come but unlike either of us, she was so successful in Wattpad that she got 19 million reads and actually a book deal. Like, what the fuck? Damn, all I got was depression. I think you got more than that, mate. <laughs> Anyways, weirdly, if you hop on Wattpad, there's plenty of stories that are focused around that dominant man stereotype. Like, if I'm going to go on it right now, because I still have the app, for God's sakes... Oh I my know. God, no. Why do I still have it? Okay, so the first one that I find right now is Running Into Mr. Billionaire. 46 million reads. What? Death Is My BFF. 20 million reads. Holy Perfect shit. Addiction. 80 million reads. Whoa. Uh, uh, that's... That's a lot of eyeballs. That's a lot of eyeballs, I know. But how fucking crazy is that? So many horny teenagers. Honestly, we were one of them. I honest, I we both know I'm still a horny teenager. Yeah, but that's because you got your magic potion, mate. However, it's a testament to how many Wattpad novels, which are first started as a hobby, later on turn into a multi-million dollar commodity for these large studio companies to exploit for more money. Like, a good example that's similar to The Kissing Booth is After. Have you heard of it, Nick? Considering that's one of the most generic titles I've ever heard, no. It's basically another shit Wattpad novel that got turned into a movie, but it's really interesting to think that there's a lucrative business behind that. But gone were the days that you could read Wattpad free without paywall and ads. And with that context in mind, uh, what did you think before seeing The Kissing Booth? Well, my pre-watch thoughts were very academically articulate. I quote from my notes earlier. This film shit, goo goo gaga. Thank you. <laughs> a true She's poet. A true poet. Okay, like I personally knew its reputation going into it. Like, but the, the quote that stuck out to me most, because I like to read up on this movie before I watch it, so I know what kind of context I'm getting into. One of the quotes that really stood out to me was that it's objectively bad, which, like, kind of confused me because films are art. How can art be objectively bad? Mm -mm. 
I mean... But then you watch the movie and it's like, oh, that's how. Ah, uh, yeah. But, like, the poster looked horrible. And I was like, yeah, boys, oh, this is my type of shit. See, I, I had the same reaction until I saw the runtime. Like, I never would have watched either of these films had it not been for you. They're too long to sit through for, like, You're some so, good it's ba- so bad it's good content. It's You're too much. Welcome. But I actually had no idea it was that long. My God, it was torture. I, I just, I kept... And I'm at, not a masochist. I kept looking at the time and it was always too much. Like, usually I measure things in... The length of unit is in Shrek 2. <laughs> okay. So I see, okay, there's 80 minutes left. There's a Shrek 2 amount of time left in this film. Yeah, but... And then no, I couldn't even do that because it was like... What's the number between one hour and... It was always, it was always like, fucking a hundred minutes left. And it's like, how has this film still got a hundred minutes left? I know. And, like, The Kissing Booth was written by a 15-year-old girl named Beth Rickles. It also won the most popular teen fiction award in Wattpad. Thank God it's the only award it's won in its lifetime. I mean, the film actually got a Kids' Choice Award, Wait, 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 what? I, I what? I actually didn't even know that. Um, yeah, what? It got nominated for Best Movie, and what? Joey King won Best Actress. Oh my god, I'm actually going to throw myself off a cliff now. How did it win a kid's choice when there's sexy times in the film? Oh my god, that is not uh, holy. Well, I mean, Joey King got it for her brilliant Ugh. acting chops, and uh, the film actually itself lost to oh Avengers god, Infinity nice. War that yeah, which has just about as much sex content. I mean, there's no sex content in Infinity War, right? Uh, the, the, okay, so what do you call Chris Evans coming out of the shadow with oh his like goodness. dirty hair, his thick beard, his scraggly uniform just pushed up ever so slightly up his arms, revealing the luscious and strong forearm of Captain America? Uh, oh my god. <laughs> fair, fair, you know what? Fair point. Let's <laughs> let's try not to get too sidetracked here with Chris Evans. Yeah, I need to change oh my, my pants. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's um let's just talk about the big elephant in the room: the six foot five excuse of a man. All Noah. right, now as a character, <laughs> oh my goodness, as a character, Noah is the embodiment of internalized rage and toxic masculinity. This isn't unusual though, because you're bound to face some sort of toxic masculinity as a teen. But this isn't like on a whole other level. Yeah, and as someone currently like going through male puberty, like there is some rage. But Noah, oh my god, that's just that's legit just violence. That's on a whole other level. It's exactly. So first, let's talk about toxic masculinity for a bit. What is it, and how did it come to be, and how does Noah reflect that? Now, the term toxic masculinity stemmed from its forefather, hegemonic masculinity, which was first coined in 1982 by University of Sydney professor Emerita Raywin Cornell. Let's see if I can pronounce that right. He was an Australian sociologist. But ideas surrounding toxic masculinity have been around for a few years before the 80s. So, Nick, have you heard of the mythopoetic men's movement? The mythopoetic men's movement. Um, 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 nah, doesn't ring a bell. So, the mythopoetic men's movement, it was a movement that basically focused on workshops dedicated to men's self-help and therapy throughout the 80s and 90s. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Still no, but I don't, it's, it's a ring, ringing some alarm mm-hmm. bells. Like, I don't know, self-help and, like, therapy are those kinds of phrases where it's like, on one hand, you got 
ah, yes, this is good.、Mm. You should do this. But also, sometimes you flip the coin and go, oh, no, that's、yeah. a cult. Yeah. You're part of、so、a cult. So it's、babe. more the latter. Let me elaborate. The term Myth the Poetic was created by Professor Shepard Bliss as an alternative name of the New Age men's movements. Now, mythopoetics, that's what they call themselves, adopted a psychological self help mode of therapy that was derived from union psychology. That just seems like a really big excuse for men to just not go to actual therapy with a licensed therapist. <laughs> It was. Robert Bly, a notable figure within the movement, wrote a book called Iron John, a book about men, where he essentially says that the male energy has been diluted by feminist intervention. <laughs> What? Dude, my male energy has never been diluted by women. I love women. If anything, they make a man manlier. Frankly, I, I smell an incel here. I'm, I'm, I smell somebody who can't get laid. And this is coming from somebody who looks like this. Oh my god, I've made another visual joke on an audio medium. But, like, it's not that hard to smell an incel, though, like, considering they don't know how to yeah, use deodorant. Yeah, rampant incel energy. But I can't understand why men would seek this, though. The mythopoetic men's movement emerged from the cusp of second wave feminism. We all know about the whole stereotype about crazy feminists, but the things they were fighting for were actually real problems relating to the autonomy of their bodies enforced by patriarchal society. Oh my God, okay. Ah,、oh, fucking.、Uh, this will have to be the second time in a row. I'll link to that ContraPoints video about men's rights activists in the description, which nobody reads. Yeah. Yeah, but the movement considered themselves to be apolitical, and some feminist scholars critiqued them for being anti intellectual. But the whole aim of the mythopoetic movement was to restore the deep masculine that has been lost from men competing with each other, men spending more time in their houses occupied by women for too long, feminism muting their voices, and of course, showing basic human emotion. Some of these are valid, like the emotions in competition, but the rest. You can take a wild guess of what I think of them. Um, bad. Bad. You, I, I don't. I think you don't like them. Okay, but like, circling back to like the four hours of content you made me watch this week, what does this have to do with Noah? I'm getting to it. They actually culturally appropriated a lot of the therapy techniques from Native American rituals, but that's a whole different topic. I would like to add though. Scholars, when discussing the origins of toxic masculinity as a term, refer to psychiatrist Dr. Terry A. Coopers when he defines it as Toxic masculinity is the constellation of socially regressive male traits that serve to foster domination, the devaluation of women, homophobia, and violence. Oh, so like,、oh, I, I get it now. Like, Noah being really weirdly aggressive. You know, how, like, he gets into fights constantly. He treats Elle like a position, as a, a position, a possession. Like, I, I get it. Like, like, Noah being weirdly aggressive. You know, he gets into these fights constantly. He treats Elle like a possession as opposed to an autonomous person. But in, and in the sequel, he is conveniently in another state when the gays get their s e a t Exactly.、Scenes. So, my entire spiel about toxic masculinity is vital because Noah represents everything that Dr. Cooper epitomizes as hegemonic masculinity. Like, not only is it the towering of his body that obstructs the frame, but it's really terrifying seeing him look at Elle as if she was merely a meat sack he can devour. A meat sack? 
Yeah, a meat sack. As much as we both despise Joey King, the way the director Vince Marcello reduces her autonomy is essentially an act of turning an active protagonist into an object of desire. So, like, they're literal teenagers. Like, can we can we just mm. talk for a moment about the yeah. fact that these are kids who can't legally <sighs> drink in America? Like, not that that mm. stops anyone, but the issue is like never brought up. But and they're drinking all the time. They just keep having tons of parties, and like also. This movie begins with an actual mm. sexual assault, but it's just framed as, like, playful. And, oh my god, why are these guys, like, so tall? Like, sure, teenage boys can be freakly, freakishly tall. Like, shout out to Boscolo, the big teddy bear I went to high school with. But this is yeah, ridiculous. Tall, and they do not look like they're 16. Holy shit. I mean, they're actually pretty close to their age that they're meant to be. I'm guessing it's because child actors are like a pain in the ass to work with, legally speaking. Uh, you know, Joey King was like barely 18 when the first film was made, and I think she's meant to be a year 11. I guess that's what we'd call it. Americans call them juniors. And Noah's in year 12, and he's only two years older than Joey in real life. Uh, so... They must have intentionally picked, they, they had to have intentionally picked the tallest, most grown motherfuckers to be dominant alpha males in this film. There's no other reason. They, they were actually casting pretty close to the age, but it's freakishly tall. Freakishly tall. Essentially, Noah is what you call a fantasy. He's tall, handsome, smart, rich, and white. He's your best friend's hot older brother. He's a fantasy for a lot of young girls, but his qualities are inherently toxic. It's something that young girls aspire for because that's what that's what that's what society has enforced upon them. Because the film is targeted towards a demographic of young teenage girls, the male audience isn't really catered to as much. Like you can disagree with me, but there is an element of a male gaze through the lens and how she's depicted. Like within the first ten minutes of the film, absolutely, Elle yeah. wears a short skirt and all of the men stare at her. Noah then victim shames her afterwards. Later, she gets her ass slapped by a rando. It is reinforcing that teenage girls should dress and act a certain way for male attention. The director is male, so case in point, the writer is a woman. Well, the original writer was a woman. She actually didn't have much to do with the film, although she did make a cameo in the party scene where they rip off 10 Things I Hate About You. The film was actually written by the director, That's Marcella. a fair point. I just assumed that they were ripping off from the source material, but perhaps that's a, there's a bit of a manipulation of text that I didn't even know about. Hmm. Oh my god, there's so many references to better films in this movie, and it, is, it makes it really horrible <laughs> to keep up with the Right, <laughs> but... <laughs> right, back to, back to Noah, though. He is a product of young female fantasy but also a product of the patriarchal values that govern this makeshift teenage fantasy. Now, let's unpack that a little more. Ah, yes, like a child on Christmas morning, only the present is a pile of shit. Very much so. So, Noah is depicted as the older Romeo who's off-limits because he's Lee's brother. We barely know anything about him. He rides a motorcycle, gets into a lot of fights, and is graduating next spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just really quickly want to say, surely I'm not the only one who's, like, really tired of this trope of using a motorcycle as shorthand for being, like, a bad boy. Like, I know. ooh, look at him. He's so cool. He's so Man. bad. Oh God, he rides like, a he motorcycle without I'm all the gear. <gasps> like, bitch, shut the fuck up. So did my dad. You're not cool. I know, but as much as Noah is the worst guy who basically the kisses worst. her... 
and then takes her virginity literally the next night. There is absolutely no substance in their relationship at all. And it doesn't even go beyond sexual as well. Like, go on L for taking charge of her sexuality and doing what she wants. But also, this is just so harmful for young yeah, girls. like, exactly. Exactly. The hyper-vigilant focus on that first kiss and the first time having sex is really a damaging concept to reinforce. Like, it puts too much pressure and importance on that notion of being pure and innocent. And so when you do get, like, a 17-year-old girl having a first time with a mediocre boyfriend after months of nagging and pressure, there's a lot of, you know, accompanying expectations and fantasies. It's supposed to be a magical moment. Like, there's fireworks, butterflies, doves singing. But, like, all, all the... That just comes crumbling down when, in the end, it's... He's not even in the same suburb as he clitoris at the end because virgins suck to have sex with. I exactly. <laughs> I've had sex with two virgins. They both sucked. Oh my god. <laughs> to cement that idea further about him being a teenage female fantasy, he is consistently always saving Elle from getting harassed by other men. He says that he's like a sister to me. Sorry, mate. But if she's like a sister, you don't have sex with her later on in the film you do if you live in Alabama oh I'm not singing the song I'm not I learned from decode I'm not singing like if only Noah just went on a mythopoetic men's trade then maybe things will be different but teenage girls may view his protectiveness as sweet when in reality it's just really possessive yeah, and controlling. Yeah, uh, Lee is another example of that possessiveness over L and by extension women in a way. Like, he, Lee is very insecure about his friendship with L, despite the fact that they've been friends since they were born. Like, uh, his friendship rules with L are essentially another form of male control over women. That rule about, like, no dating relatives is, like, it's a very one-way street, like... She only has, like, a little brother, a dad, and I highly doubt that he's gonna fuck her dead mum. <laughs> Nick, what the fuck? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can definitely see Leah's really insecure. Like, in the second film, he never pays much attention to his girlfriend, and she gets upset, and rightly so. I mean, bros before hoes, but you need to make sure your misses feel good sometimes, you know? Are you vaguing about a certain someone talking to me about cum instead of you? No, but also maybe just like a general rule, you kind of want to be putting actual effort into a relationship. Like if you like slash love someone, you don't ditch them to hang out with your best friend who's already clingy. Yes, oh my god, like that was something that we really emphasised in the second film. That, that relationship between Elle and Lee, are like, it's ridiculously codependent mm. and it's not even cute. I mm. hate it. I know. Now, speaking of men, ugh, Lee and Noah are the worst. But Marco from the second movie, now that is a man. If Noah epitomizes toxic masculinity, Marco fucking owns it as a man. He's sweet, hot loving and emotional he helps Elle with her dancing because he wants to he doesn't have any ulterior motives and later respects her when she chooses Noah over him he is a god at DDR he's Latino and whoa a person who ain't white damn 
Now, Marco is also another fantasy for young girls too, except this time it's the sentimental and creative guy. I, I don't know, he, he was kind of a dick to Elle. Like, not abusive, but I, I, I just don't know what it is about this girl. Whenever a guy is, like, slightly mean to her, she pushes back a little outwardly, but inwardly you hear her thoughts through voiceover, and she's always like, ooh, ooh, take me, daddy. It, like, it reinforces that sort of hard-to-get, or that really just-gotta-push-for-that-yes mindset that a lot of men have, where no means Yeah, yes. I get it, but compared to Noah and Lee, he is significantly better. Like, yeah, he was a dick to her at the start. Because remember, she was talking about how hot he is in front of the entire school. She was a cunt to him first. Whoa. He has every right to retaliate back. Okay, first of all, Mon, there are Americans listening. They don't like that <laughs> word. <laughs> sorry. I can't say the I can't say the C word, I'm sorry. Also, I can't believe you said it on pod before me. <laughs> but like, I don't know, in no world is overly sexualizing a person behind their back and, you know, accidentally broadcasting it to the entire school being a cunt. I don't know, Nick. But if I was in Marco's shoes, I would have been hella mad. Also, she was also kind of using Marco. She needed him for the DDR competition and he wanted to help her regardless. Yeah, but she she didn't want to do it with Marco. Like, Lee faked an injury and pushed them together. Which is, like, a really bad thing to do. Like, yeah, she indirectly used him, both as a rebound and emotional support. He knows she has a boyfriend, but he never pushes himself onto her. It was after the dance where they both made the move. Obviously, he shouldn't have done that, and Elle shouldn't have either, but Marco is far from perfect. As soon as I believed he had some sort of decency, he starts sizing up Noah. And Noah retaliates and both try to fight, again, the fantasy of two men fighting for one girl. Very animalistic. Yeah, and that also feeds into that sort of not like other girls thing, where Elle is basically Bella, so she's like, fucking unremarkable, yet at the same time, so totally irresistible to those around her, for no reason. And also note that Noah specifically tell tells Elle that the difference is you when he takes her to that makeout spot and she accuses him of being a player. Oh my god, I cannot. And speaking of Noah, Jacob Elordi, who, by the way, is from Melbourne like us, he went to St. Kevin's, which is a school renowned for its toxic masculine and many, many controversies relating to the boys will be boys culture. Yeah, and that's that sort of attitude is exactly what films like this reinforce. Like, boys will be boys and hey... Male aggression is just a sign that he loves you. Now, what I find really fascinating is his parallel role in Euphoria. He plays a very similar role, yet he's definitely depicted in a raw way that showcases the harm and danger of toxic masculinity. Jacob actually points out an article and criticizes his role as Noah, but his role as Nate deals with toxic masculinity in a really multifaceted yeah, and, way. Um, also, like that issue with toxic men kind of goes into the traditional heterosexual values and expectations. Like, um, okay, for this next part, no offense if you're heterosexual, we know that you were just born that way. You had no choice. You were just born hetero. Like, it's not, it's not your fault. That being said, like, not to be heterophobic, but um, uh. Ah, yes, the classic coming-of-age films that are, again, for the straights. You guys already have enough. Like, spare some for the queers, please. Hey, 
Okay, gay men got love, Simon. Trans people got a little doco about how much trans representation in film sucks. So, I don't know, the rest of the L's, the G's, the B's, and the T's just have to wait 10 years before we can get another crumb without everyone throwing a hissy fit. I know, but obviously if we bypass the film for its fixed monogamy and heteronormativity, and as much as I hate the heteros and can't wait for the queer uprising, it's also very unusual watching the film from a queer perspective or from the perspective that of someone that is non-binary. That's a fun way of saying that watching heterosexual teenagers fail at communicating and forming functional relationships is torture tantamount to whatever the CIA does at Guantanamo. <laughs> now, let's see if we can do a little bit of a spin-a-rooney and try to do a queering of the kissing booth. Now, queering for all you straighties out there just means a queer reading. Basically, we're going to analyse the text by pointing out the issues of heteronormativity and how we're going to challenge them. Challenge them? Really? I thought we were going to support them. Of course we aren't. Now, there's a rigid structure to the kissing booth and many rom-coms that have come before. It's that implementation of the heteronormative gaze that doesn't fit within a queer lens. It's the hyper-focus on the gender binary of purely just man and woman, and it's quite interesting. Like, enforcing these stereotypes that have been around cinema for decades and popular culture since its dawn, again, there are many queer people who prefer to live in a heteronormative lifestyle and many heteros who prefer to be non-conforming. Like the famous and fabulous Judith Butler said, gender is performative and thus it seeps into a lot of the media that is presented to us at a certain age. Like come on, rom-coms are all white, skinny heteros. People who are fat, non-conventionally attractive, not white or gay are forced into playing the best friend slash comic book. Uh, okay, as somebody who is almost all of that, it's the trauma that gives you the edge. Other people spend their life laughing at you, so you develop a thick skin and learn to laugh at yourself. You hone your skills and then you turn the tables, okay? Shoes on the other foot now, fuckheads. Like, okay, can you imagine someone like Joey King trying to be a comedic relief? There's too much privilege there, it's boring. No. No funny. Yeah, exactly. So, the thing is, mainly young people today identify as queer in some shape or form. Only about 36% of young people exclusively identify as heterosexual, right? It's very interesting. So why do rom-coms and coming-of-age films always center around heterosexuality? Well, because it's being written by the generation that doesn't believe in the singular they. Also, 36%? Bro, why am I constantly surrounded by straight people then? I know. (laughs) I know, I know. It's It's actually the worst, right? Don't I mean know, to be it's heterophobic. so horrible. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be heterophobic. <laughs> but furthermore, all the relationships that are predominantly on screen and straight are toxic. The men are insecure and are forced to play the role of masculinity. They be and fight for the woman. The women are expected to take this poor damaged soul of a man and fix mm. him up. Why? Because that is the role of a woman. Yeah, like, I've... I initially found, like, the most peaceful parts of the film, and when I say peaceful, I mean when I wasn't drunkenly writing notes about my bafflement and could actually just sit and absorb the content because it wasn't utterly terrible. Those little peaceful parts were the montage where it's just Elle and Noah having a good time in their relationship, that little honeymoon period, until I thought about the ramifications of the implication that Elle is being expected to fix Noah's aggression. Like, you'll notice that after Elle and Noah get in a rello, Noah stops fighting people, despite the fact that, like, beating the shit out of Lee 
would have ended this movie so quickly. Like, he could have just gone, fuck you, beat down, okay, no more friendship rules, okay? I, I have two older brothers. I have seen them beating the shit out of each other, and I have been beaten up by them. I'm still scared of Avatar because of one of them. If they wanted to square up to break one of my hypothetical friendship rules, they'd fucking win, okay? Th this was just a really long-winded form of reinforcing women fixing broken men instead of men going to therapy. And I mean actual po therapy, not mythopoetic. I know, like, at least I'm not going to mythopoetic therapy. But yeah, the heteros just love it when a woman plays her traditional caregiving role. She must nurture the man. The man must open up to her slowly. He will reveal his pain and suffering. Oh, how hard is it to be an attractive, straight, white man from a rich school? I'm so misunderstood. I wear leather jackets and ride motorbikes. Like, fuck off, <laughs> Noah. Wow, well, well, that's... <laughs> One, are you getting a little heterophobic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm allowed to. I please, I'm allowed to. But honestly, I can go even further. Now, Noah is represented through an Oedipal lens. He yearns like most men to have a woman who is both a motherly figure and also someone he can returnly have Ew. sex with. Whoa! Freud must be so proud yeah, of me. Freud can <laughs> suck my mum's dick. Surely you're not using the theory <laughs> made by the guy that assumed that just because he wanted to kill his dad and fuck his mum, everyone else did. Also, he made up the term pansexual. He made that term. But it also, the original definition, fun fact, included necrophilia and bestiality. Yeah. Yeah, Ooh. that's what I think of Freud. <sighs> Ooh, okay, now I'm just saying, it's just so frustrating how this film utilizes miscommunication in the most oh annoying God, way. Like, especially in the second film. Oh my God! Oh my God, oh my God. So much of that could have been solved by just talking. Like, Elle being insecure and thinking about Noah cheating on her with the pretty British model when Elle finds the earring. Mm. If she just spoke to him, maybe things will be better. And yes, long-distance relationships are hard, and I know that. But that requires a lot of communication from both yeah, parties. Yeah, communication. Yeah, and it's it's a reflection of, like, the worst of toxic monogamy culture. Like, I'm not even a polygamist. But here you've just got the worst. Like, all the lack of communication, the messed up priorities, leaping to accusations of cheating, jealousy, women fighting over men like men are actually worth anything. It's a headache. I know. Now, so let's try and break down the depiction of the gays and the heteros in this film. Of course, I would have loved it if there was more screen time for the gay couple because they were sweet and I'm glad it was there. However... Why is it that when a queer relationships are depicted within these films that are always pushed into the background and never central to it? It just feels like they're placed in there just for the sake of having diversity, which is kind of disgusting. Like, oh, look, we love gay people too. Yeah, very tokenistic. Uh, I had mixed feelings <sighs> about that because on one hand, yeah, it was a very cute little moment. Like, But on the other hand, honestly, if I could just... Thanos snap those scenes out just to get some fucking coherency in this film. Sorry, bye gays, you're going to a better place. Like, it just felt <laughs> a little weird and fetishistic that this was the only non-L or Lee subplot to appear in either film. It's just, here's a gay. 
Here's another gay. Yes? They kiss. Happy Whoa. now? Are you happy? Are, have we satisfied the gays? No. Exactly. The gays are never satisfied. Also, I know, but also this is a little side note, but the lady with the piercings is bisexual and they placed her literally in the credit scene where she kisses another woman. Like, come on. That's not even a part of the film and they'll show her sucking Noah's face with no hesitation in the film, but she makes out with a girl and gets squeezed into the credits? Are you kidding oh yeah, me? Like, as two very much pierced individuals, the two of us, I gotta say, I hate how they framed her as like inherently worse than your average Joey. Like, she's the slut for making out with Noah. Not Noah's the slut, she's the slut. Uh, and, like, she's mean because her face is mostly metal. Like, there's some crazy internalized misogyny and sexism going on there. Like, <laughs> like we talked about this on our first episode, but let's define internalized misogyny or internalized sexism first. Like, internalized misogyny at its core is the contempt for other women with a gender bias towards men. It's women hating on other women because they are women. Girl code doesn't exist within that framework because women have been oppressed and demeaned by patriarchal society. They inexplicably internalize it to other for, women. It's so weird for a film that so meticulously referenced mean girls. The core aspects of the narrative just ignore the main takeaways of that anti-click, anti-girl-on-girl message that mean girls was actually sending out. Like, the women in these films are horrible to each other, unless it's narratively better for them to look like good people by being nice. They just default to suspicion and lies and deceit and once again fighting over men even though men are worthless. Men are worthless. Now, <laughs> men really are worthless. Now, Elle thinking that she isn't like other girls, that ex that's an example of internalized misogyny. Thinking that being not like other women makes you better than them as a rejection of femininity and a judgment of those who embrace it. Mm. I've made this joke before, but fuck it. You know, I, I used to think that I wasn't like other girls too. Exactly, but you're no, you're no girl. Now, I mean, if you were around back in the day, or even just aware of the memes now, it was a big thing for girls in Wattpad to write stories embodying self-objectification, considering all the stories that started with you coming down the stairs with your moosey brown hair to find your alcoholic mother has sold you to One Direction for a pack of ciggies. Yeah, I, I never read those past that opening hook. What happened in them? It was mostly about the implication. The implication? Yeah, the implication that women are property. Oh, that actually sounds like a terrible trope to reinforce, especially when your target demographic is young, impressionable people who are kind of being susceptible to being moulded and influenced. Yeah, and then you know what happened? A man took a trope that woman reclaims and he unironically put that shit into film. I fucking hate men and I'm going to kill any man over 40 who makes another film about high school. I swear to God. Too rant. <laughs> Actually, may I rant uncontrollably about a dead white man and his legacy on the Bildungsroman film genre to wrap this I'll up? I'll allow it. Only because he's dead. This film is an unholy abomination combination amalgamation of, of the worst 
of John Hughes, Wattpad, and Netflix combined into a current total of four hours and five minutes of boring, repetitive crap that gets so shit that at one point I circled around and I did a 180, and for a hot minute I thought it that that was self-aware, like it had to intentionally be bad in that sort of post-ironic Riverdale style where they don't tell you that it's like intentionally bad, but you just kind of know. But no, it's not. It's 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 just bad, like. It's like people trying to justify showgirls as being a satire. Like, just admit that it was a film that horribly missed the mark. I don't care if it's satire. It's not good satire. And, oh my god, if the kissing booths are a commentary on something, they're not fucking good at it. John Hughes. John Hughes was an iconic director. Like, nobody's arguing about that. But he was the quintessential 80s film man. Like, and just like leg warmers, rampant homophobia, and new wave music, we should have left his tropes back in the 80s. But the director of The Kissing Booth is trying to pull a mullet and bring it back to the modern day. But just like the mullet, it's ugly, it's disgusting, it's gross, it's outdated, and Max King looks better without it. I mean, for Pete's sake, Molly Ringwald is in this film. And yes, I'm still mad about the ending of The Breakfast Club, but reading that fact, I thought that might she might actually have an impact on this film. But no, she's just there because this director has a massive hard-on for Hughesy like the Gen X son of a bitch that he is. Wow. That is a lot. Yeah, we should totally just stab Caesar. Yeah, but you're right. It's kind of effed how the producers were like, hmm, we need someone to channel a 15-year-old girl and they went with a fully grown man just because he had supposedly one good kids movie, literally called Teen Beach Movie. And the, the worst thing is that it worked. It was one of the most watched and then rewatched Netflix originals at the time. It was so good that they filmed two and three back to back, and three is coming out next year. <sighs> yeah, but The Kissing Booth as a film? I didn't hate it that much. You know what? Me either. Like, I actually quite. I thought it was somewhat enjoyable. As well as painful. Painful, painful. Like, I agree with the critics, and I agree with that first quote from at the top of the episode where they say it was objectively bad, but there are, like, like there are bad films like Shrek the Third, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and The Third Terminator. But then there are objectively bad films like 365 Days, Movie 43, Food Fight. Cats. Don't you dare blaspheme like that. Okay. (laughs) Cats is... God. It's like, it's objectively bad, but I didn't want to off myself until I, until I looked at how long was left. That was, the length was the biggest issue for me. I've never heard that one before. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like, 365 Days, we both agree, was bad from scene one. No redeemable aspects, objectively bad and disgusting. We will be discussing that at some point. Yeah. But The Kissing mm. Booth was just draining Mm. now it knows that it's cringe and it appeals to that demographic in a really bad way of course but it still appeals nonetheless yeah and like you only have to look at the way that the dialogue is written to see that it's very much adults writing for kids not to emulate them but to please these kids Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> it's fine, just it's say it. 40-year-old <laughs> men pleasing kids. <laughs> wow. I mean, there's so many points where it just baffled me. Like, one of my notes is just all in caps. 
who has security? And then there's like one of those comma ellipses for a gazebo. And if I was home alone, by the end of this, I would have just been screaming gazebo by the end of it. I would have been on my kitchen floor, crying, making a Snapchat story, drunk, my dog's looking at me concerned, just screaming gazebo. Gazebo? I hate gazebo. Gazebo? And uh, can we talk about the uniform? Oh my god. What kind of school has a uniform like that? It's so ugly. And wow, I just hate rich people. I hate white people. I especially hate rich white people who go to rich white schools with ugly uniforms. Like, you know, Nick, Mm. I hate private schools. I hate anybody that goes to private schools. Private school students can suck my dick. But thank God I didn't have a uniform like that when I was in high school. I just would wear hoodies under my my jumpers and be like, all right, guys, I'm going to school now. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I almost had an aneurysm over that uniform. There's an entire section of my notes that's just a big chunk of the inconsistency of the uniform. There was no consistency in, you know, shirt colour. There was no consistency in tie colour, how it's meant to be worn. There was no consistency in enforcing the rules. And I just, I hated it. I hated it so much because I went to a, I want to say semi-private school. And my high school had an ex-Navy guy whose literal job was just enforcing the uniform and other rules. Like, he wasn't a teacher. He was just there to yell at us when we were climbing out of second-story windows and when we were wearing the I would always socks. wear, like, purposely darker socks for high school, and nobody would actually care. The thing is, like, I went to a public school, and it was, like, a very underfunded, like, public school. Like, the buildings were kind of broken. Like, we only had, like, 400 students in the entire school. Like, we were very small. And so, basically, like, nobody really cared, but they've tried to enforce, like, school uniforms. Like, it's so important to always wear the correct uniform. And I'm like, excuse me, we can't even afford proper water in our fountains and in the bathrooms. Why would you expect us to wear the correct uniform and many of the students that went to my high school were also like of lower middle class and so because of that how, how do you expect us to pay like fucking 60 dollars for a jumper and a white t-shirt like what the freak yeah and they, they, my school at least they um they got away with being able to tell who was wearing uniform because they would like sew on little emblems i'm not sure if this is standard practice but our socks the, the they were eight dollars a pair and they were embroidered with our little eagle and the name of our high school and there was no fucking point but that's the thing at least there was consistency in how that was enforced and what we had to wear it was bullshit it was expensive but i hate the fact that these people are just so rich and their school is doing a uniform thing but it's not really a uniform if it's not exactly you know uniform it's not and two and two i hate rich people i also we haven't i just want a quick side note they have a beach house 
They have a house oh on the beach God. and they have a beach I, house. I'm, okay, this is just literally just I, Mon and Nick complaining about rich people because like, we, we're, we're from the southeast of Melbourne, right? That shit's tough, okay? So I, I like, me, like, you and I have, like, we grew up like in the suburbs. So we grew up like thinking about money and like <laughs> thinking about, oh my God, like, you know, like, we, yeah, we're not rich basically, is what I'm trying to say. To any of the listeners who have yeah. been in private schools, I'm just literally only talking about them. Khan. <laughs> <laughs> no, Khan, I Khan know knows Khan the grind. Does, but he, uh, He's not rich. Khan. He's not rich. His car's piss yellow. <laughs> that's true. His car what is piss yellow. What kind of rich person has a piss yellow car? <laughs> and that's, that's how you... That's how you know that Lee is fucking rich, rich. He gets his dream car, and it's some, like, old car. It's probably a reference to an 80s thing, because what kind of 16-year-old wants a kind of fucking car like that? He just gets it for his 16th birthday. Just no question. Like, who? What? <laughs> Mm-mm. But, yeah, like, Khan, his piss-yellow car. You know, I'm, I actually rode inside his piss-yellow car. It's very comfortable. <laughs> It was really comfortable. It's totally nice. I was like, this isn't so bad. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, we need to stop bullying Khan on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we need to do it to his face. We need to do it. We need. I mean, we actually can get out of ISO perhaps, and maybe we can bully Khan. Um, but yeah, you know what I also find super interesting is the fact that these films make it seem like getting into Harvard is so easy. Like it honestly isn't. It's really difficult. Like I don't. I do not fucking believe Noah and Al got into Harvard. Noah did not. He didn't. He looked like he did not study at all. I think they might have just gotten in because money. Um. Okay. What was I? Um. Oh yeah. Like I. My only exposure like to getting into harvard is that one sequence in legally blonde where they make a really big deal out of it and you've got l woods with a 4.0 gpa studying her ass off doing all this montage to get into harvard and she nails it and then it's like in this one it's like oh yeah average joey king who is never once shown studying like at all you never see her do academic work not a big issue, but it's like there's like no evidence of how well she's doing in school, and she just gets into Harvard. I I also refuse, I refuse to believe, to believe that, it. That I I I can't. I would not believe it. Like, I had to study so hard for my year twelve mm. exams. Oh my god, I remember that? Do you remember that? Oh ATAR? Oh my god. I remember studying so hard for my year 12 exams. And I was like so stressed. I'm like, oh my god, what if I never get into university? What if I fucking fail my life? And I just, I just am homeless and I'm a garbage man for the rest of my life. Like, this is not what I want. And then I get my results. I'm like, it's not that bad. At least I like, I'm not, I don't get an ATAR of like one, you know? Like... I was like, it's not that bad. And then you, like, go into uni and everyone forgets about it. Also, like, solidarity to American uni students. Like, I actually looked up the same thing that Elle looks up, like, about halfway through the second one. She types in, oh, yes, Harvard tuition and living expenses. And, oh, my God, they don't show you the number in the film, which is why I Googled it. And it's, like, 
that shit is $70,000 a year. And then I looked up the other option that she was looking at, where it's like, oh no, her dad says, oh no, Harvard's too expensive, just go to Berkeley. I looked that up, and it's 40000 I think my degree here is costing me about 7000 a year. And even then, the government's trying to, like, hike those fees up, and we're actively fighting them back because they got free uni. But Jesus Christ, 70000 a year. Exactly. No, that's actually really interesting because I was I watched a video on on Twitter and it was basically these women that were actually kind of educating us about how much they have to pay their university debt. And it's among like they were like like this lady was like I already paid forty thousand dollars. I have a hundred and fifty thousand dollars left to pay. And I was like, what? Because they have to pay their debt and then interest. And I was like, what the fuck is going on, America? That is so scary. Like, imagine, like, going to university, like, studying your dream course and then having to pay for the rest of your entire life. Mm. It's, honestly, that's that's terrifying. And it's That's just, actually really terrifying. It's not even brought up. Money's, like, only an issue for that sort of, like, little plot point. In, like in this, in these films, money is just never an issue. It's just it's never brought up except for that comment by the dad of like how much Harvard costs, and it's every other time it's like, yeah, yeah, I money's mean... not an object. Oh my, going to Harvard just to be with your boyfriend, mm, Jesus, it's so weird. And the fact that Elle spent all her time doing DDR just so she can get money pay to go to Harvard and be with her boyfriend. Yeah, you'd have to move to Boston. Actually, no. Is it Boston? I don't know. And I might like Boston. Sister, like, you don't do that. Would I do that? No. (laughs) I'm not going to Harvard. I hate rich people. Uh, Oh. I think so. Boston seems cool because that's where they threw the Boston tea, isn't it? In the Assassin's Harbor? Creed Three. Oh, I'm talking. I'm talking like revolution, and you're talking. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Americans. I don't know anything about American history. I'm just like I just I just learn everything about American history from Assassin's Creed Three, which is a really bad video game. Like it's like oh my god, I remember the time where they threw the tea off the harbor, man. That's so cool. And then you find it's a real thing, and I'm like, aha! Yeah. Yeah, they actually threw, I think it was like decades worth of tea. Yeah, because off the, tea those ships. Is... It was like, because the, the English had just, well, they'd won the Seven Years' War, I want to say, and they were broke, so they started raising taxes in the colonies. And the colonies didn't like that. Alright. Okay. So, I think that that's all we uh, have. Um, Alright. So, for next time, since you made us watch a bad film for adolescents, next week we're watching a good film for children. No, we're not. Nah. Yeah. No, we're <laughs> not. Right. We're not. We're watching Happy Feet 1 and 2. Ooh, yay! <laughs> I, I cannot wait for you to see gay Brad Pitt wait, what? as a shrimp. Brad Pitt is gay as a shrimp. What? What? He's gay. I as actually a gay haven't shrimp. seen it in so long. 
I know. Oh my god, it's it's gonna be so fun. Gay Brad and just Pitt deconstructing the George Miller masterpiece that is Happy Feet. <laughs> Happy Feet. <laughs> anyway, so that's gonna be fun. But in the meantime, if you want more content updates and ship posting, you can find us on Facebook as as a film student podcast, Instagram as film student pod, or you can watch me slowly go mad on Twitter at as film student. We have three followers, and I'm one of them. And I'm You're also one other. of them. I think the other ones can't. Yeah, the other ones can't. I'm going insane running that thing. It's fun. Anyway. All the links will be in the description as well as all our sources. And if you're mad that you're listening to this on a platform that you don't like, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Overcast, Castro, and yes, I will be going to California to ring someone's neck to maybe speed up the approval process for Google Play as soon as possible. But for now, I've been Nick. And I've been Mon. Thanks for listening. Have a good day, as, as, or as good as you can have in these trying times.